Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krause, and I hope that you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. Now, did you have a lightsaber toy when you were a kid? I did. It was a Kenner inflatable lightsaber that kept me and my friends safe from Darth Vader and the dark side when I was 13 years old. Later in the show, we'll meet Roger Christian. He's the English set decorator, production designer, and feature film director who won an Academy Award for his work on the original Star Wars and was Oscar nominated for his work on Alien. He's also the man who built the lightsaber, probably one of the most famous props in movie history. He stops by to talk about his new film, a memoir documentary called Galaxy Built on Hope, which fills in a major missing chapter in the history of the making of Star Wars. The film tells the story of the Star Wars art department and how Roger worked with the brilliant production designer John Barry to bring George Lucas's fantastic vision to the big screen, but on a budget. That's a little bit later on. We'll also meet award-winning Sri Lankan-Canadian novelist Shyam Shelverdurai. His new novel, Mansions of the Moon, is a reimagining of ancient India through the extraordinary life of the woman who married the Buddha. More on that later. First, though, let's meet Kevin Doyle. He's one of the stars of Downton Abbey, A New Era, the big screen continuation of the adventures of the aristocratic Crawley family. Doyle plays the Abbey's former second footman and now village schoolmaster, Joseph Mosley, and was a regular on the beloved television series for all six seasons. You must never think that education is only for special people, you know, for clever people, for toffs. Education is for everyone. You would say that, sir? Yes, I would. But I'm not anyone special. You're a teacher. I'm a teacher now, but I'm an ordinary bloke. I've spent my life in service, fetching and carrying. You were a servant? I was. I am. And I was glad to get the work. My mum's in service. She works for Mr Travis at the vicarage. Dad's a gardener at Skelton Park. But I never gave up on learning, do you see? I read as much as I could and I taught myself. And I hope to be able to teach you, maybe give you the shortcut that I never had. I spoke with Kevin Doyle during the release of the first Downton Abbey movie on the show's popularity and learning the ins and outs of being a footman at the Abbey. Here's Kevin Doyle. It could be said that the show looks back on that time mm -hmm. through rose-tinted spectacles, because certainly some people's existences within those households wouldn't have been as... Yeah, we're miserable. And, yeah. the, the, you know, perhaps the, 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 the people who run the show wouldn't have been as benign as yeah. uh, Lord Grantham. But you're right, there is a responsibility that he feels, and, that, 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 and that's a sort of a subject which is often sort of talked about, that kind of sense of responsibility, because they're not just there for themselves, they're there for... and not just there for the servants, they're there for... The district, they're there for the county. It's important. It's, it's an important uh, source of employment um, uh, and it's an important uh, source of revenue. So uh, you do get a sense, as you said, that it's, it's, uh, it's passed down through the ages and you get a sense in the movie that that responsibility is being passed over from Lord Grantham to his daughter, Lady mm -hmm. Mary. So there's a kind of an ongoing thing, and that that's a sort of a, a topic which Julian has often explored, and and the the series explores, and it also explores the idea that in the 1920s, when the bulk of this is set, that things are changing. Your character, in particular, 
uh, is looking to not be a footman his entire life, to, you know, having a, a change in his station in life. And that, before that era was probably unheard of. If you were a footman, you could come up and maybe be head footman or you could be, you know, you could raise in the ranks a little bit, but you were never going to be a teacher or a lawyer or a doctor. That's right. I mean, he was clearly, and it's referenced uh, sort of midway through the the seasons, that he was clearly a a bright young fellow. Mm -hmm. And uh, he could have, you know, had he been given the opportunity, he could have gone on to to, to do f- things with himself, but uh, due to circumstance and you know uh, financial mm-hmm. necessity, uh, he, he finds himself in service, as a lot of people did back then. You know, the, and it's kind of an indicator that what an extraordinary waste of talent must have occurred throughout that time. People who are clearly bright. Mm-hmm. But there was no path for them to go to onto further education or anything like that because of financial necessity, and I, I found that, so, that that was something that resonated. I, I, and Julian did a really brave thing. I don't know whether you remember, but at the end of season three, you know, Matthew uh, is killed, mm-hmm. and um, and so they were one of the most shocking moments in that show I think. yeah 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know it <laughs> fell on christmas day at yeah. home so that, that kind of is a, uh, uh, spoils a lot of people's um, festive period that's right but um yeah so the 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 the, the course of the show took an unexpected mm-hmm. turn uh, and so whereas you could have foreseen a sort of a, a relatively calm domestic future for that family suddenly it's uh it's turned upside down lady mary is suddenly a widow but, you know, speaking personally, um, I wasn't sure at the end of season three if I would have a job the following year because, you know, with, with Matthew, the character of Matthew gone, there's no reason for, 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 for Molesley to be around. And, and, and so, of course, that would have been the same for Molesley himself or the people right. who served that, that, sort of, that job. You know, if, you, if your master is no longer around, then you're out on the street. You're listening to Kevin Doyle on The Richard Krause Show. See him in Downton Abbey, a new era in theatres now. You didn't just work in the house. You weren't just uh, doing general duties. You would work for one specific member of the house yeah, often. Exactly. You would dress them. You would make sure that they were completely attended to. And if they went somewhere, you traveled with them, likely. Yes. Uh, and if they died, well, then your job may die with them. Yeah, yeah. And they they tried to find him a job and there was no job to be had. And so he finds himself sort of semi-destitute for a short while. And um, and then uh, uh, the house takes pity on him. Uh, but it, it kind of shows you that, you know, uh, well, like today, you're, you're two paychecks away from the street. Mm-hmm. It is so detailed in its depiction of life. Uh, from that time. Tell me a little bit about the kind of research that must have happened. I know that there was uh, someone on set who was uh, a, a guidance counselor or, or a historical... Uh, uh, An extraordinary man yeah. called Alistair Bruce, who... I'm going to try and get this right. He's a, he's a herald mm. within the royal household. So whenever uh, the Queen attends the opening of Parliament, he's just off to the right-hand side in this extraordinary costume. Um, and so he attends her, and he has this... He, and Perhaps the name Bruce will resonate with some members of your audience because he can date his family back to Robert the Bruce. Wow. 
you know, one of those medieval yeah, yeah. kings of Scotland. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, that's the kind of lineage we're talking <laughs> about. And, uh, and so you can imagine the, the, the wealth of knowledge that he has. So, I mean, he, he knows the sort of the mundane, everyday workings mm -hmm. of, of a household like that. But you can ask him almost anything about anything. And, uh, for instance, I was asking him, um, we, we got talking about the royal family one day during the filming of the show, the TV show, and I was saying, um, well, presumably when Prince Charles becomes king, he will become King Charles III. And he said, no, 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 not, not at all, not at all. You know, he, he could well uh, adopt another name. I said, well, well, why would he do that? He said, well, it's up to him. He can call himself whatever he wants to call himself. <laughs> oh, right, okay. Uh, so, I mean, so he, he has that, yeah. kind, he has that uh, encyclopedic knowledge. And so, and without him, uh, and he was there every day for us, Without him, the show couldn't have been the same because I think part of the attraction of the show is that extraordinary detail. Mm -hmm. And you might not sort of n notice it, but you would notice it if it wasn't there. Right. For instance, when we're, when we're uh, serving around the, the very extraordinary dining table that we have at, uh, at Downton Abbey, um, he, he would often tell us that uh, when, you, when you emerge upstairs uh, through the green baize door, you're putting on a performance. You're no longer, you're no longer sort of servants from downstairs. You're, you're representing the household. But also, and you're having to do that in an invisible way. And like in the very best restaurants that you go to, the service is invisible. And there's a reason for that. Um, you know, there, there's a reason why uh, there must always, when, when you're, you're serving food or, or, or drink, there are, there are, uh, there's a gap of two guests between servants while they while they dip down and it's it, it's and it's all to enable the sociability of the table to allow the conversation to flow without right. being interrupted by somebody would you like some more potatoes Mark? Right. you know that kind of thing <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's meant to be absolutely invisible and there were days early on in my career upstairs when uh, i kept sort of crashing into the shot and i and jim was sort of slapping his head in uh, Jim Carter, yeah. plays Mr. Carter, was slapping his head in frustration because I was ruining the take. Because I was just sort of, I, I hadn't learnt how to sort of, that choreography. The Rolling Stones used to stop rehearsals yeah. to go watch uh, Down Abbey. Michelle Obama's a big fan. Yeah. I mean, it goes on and on. So when did you first realize that that was all happening? Well, Jim Carter tells a really nice story. Um, he plays Mr. Carson. Uh, we knew it was going to be successful at home, and uh, we started the, to promote the second series. We came over to, to North America, and uh, we uh, were in um, in Washington, and uh, at the British Embassy, and you know many uh, American sort of dignitaries and congressmen were invited, and uh, and we imagined it would be sort of a very placid affair. But they were fighting one another <laughs> to get to, to us. And you kind of thought, oh, oh, oh this is unusual. And uh, again, Jim Carter said he, he was on holiday in Cambodia uh, visiting the Angkor Wat temple. And, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of miles away. Yeah. And uh, somebody came up to him and said, ah, Mr. Carson, Mr. Carson. Kevin, what a treat to speak with you. Thank Likewise. you very much for coming in. That was Kevin Doyle on The Richard Krause Show talking about Downton Abbey. You can see him reprise his role as Mr. Mosley in the new film, Downton Abbey, A New Era, playing right now in theaters.
let's meet award-winning Sri Lankan novelist Shyam Salvadurai. His new novel, Mansions of the Moon, is a reimagining of ancient India through the extraordinary life of the woman who married the Buddha. I want to go back just a little ways, though. What made you want to tell stories professionally? I know that you studied the theater and uh, wanted to be a playwright at one point, and then there was a shift somewhere along the way. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, it was the uh, mid to late 1980s, and there was no um, possibility at that point of doing plays about uh, sort of the Sri Lankan experience because they simply weren't actors. Mm -hmm. So I uh, made a conscious decision to switch to fiction. And by then, of course, people like Rohit and Mystery and Neil B. Sunath were having success uh, because they were being published by uh, mainstream uh, presses and I just sort of thought to myself, you know, I just have to switch over. And so I took this creative writing course at, at York University and it just made, I just loved it. I had a great teacher. He taught me craft uh, in the old fashioned strict way. And mm -hmm. at the end of it, he said, uh, don't come back. I, I've taught you everything now go right, go right. So at that time, Montreal was a wonderfully cheap place to live. So I took my savings and went there. And that's how it all started. And you have said that you always felt like you had something to say. And it was just, I guess, a matter of finding the way to express it. Why do you think that is? Uh, uh, not everyone is drawn to writing or or the theater or whatever it might be. Why do you think it appealed to you? you know, Richard, I don't know. I don't have the answer for that. Yeah. I mean, it is a vocation. And why you are called to this vocation is, um, I mean, no matter what I say, it will always have sound like you can say, okay, I'm any sort of introverted person who likes spending a lot of time on my own. Uh, I'm aware of the world. Uh, I mean, whatever you say, just, just, I mean, there, every, there are lots of people like that, you know, mm -hmm. who aren't also felt, feel this call to write. You say, I don't feel like, or, or I didn't feel like I was a proper writer until The Hungry Ghosts, which is a, a few books in. Uh, I really learned my craft with that book. Um, what did you learn? And when was there a moment while you were writing it? Or was it afterwards that you said, damn, I'm a writer now. Like this is, <laughs> and you had had a great deal of success before that, but, mm -hmm. but it, it, it's all in your head, I guess. Yeah, I think it was more like... Uh... I thought I wanted my language to be better. I think I was very mm. clear to me. That was a clear goal. And I wanted to try and come up with a strategy uh, to achieve that. And that was through constantly looking at what I'd written and uh, in the in the Hungry Ghost and, and refining it and refining it and weeding it and learning how to do that. Uh, yeah. Learning how to write more imagistically. Um, I just wanted to write better. I thought that mm -hmm. I could write better uh, on just the level of the sentence. And of course, I was reading other writers in a very intense way, poets, trying to see what I could take from them. Um, and I think just the hardship of writing that novel, which took 13 years to write, um, I, it taught me. And I think, but also I think more than that, I think I, I think when I said that quote, I think I, think I had quite, understood or come to come to understand and accept that that this whole idea of Buddhism and Buddhist stories and Buddhist trajectories was 
was kind of something I really was interested in mm. and was a kind of unique way to be uh, to write as a writer. And that somehow when that came together, it felt like um, like I'd found my stream in a way. And and somehow I just felt like I had more control at that point as a writer. You're listening to Shyam Salvadurai on The Richard Krauss Show. His book, Mansions of the Moon, is available now wherever you buy fine books. And we'll talk about Mansions of the Moon in just a sec, but I want to ask you a, a couple more questions uh, about the journey to that mm -hmm. book. Uh, do you think that writing then is like a muscle that the more you do it, the stronger you get. You mentioned reading poetry and, and doing all those other things to feed your brain, but there is something about sitting down and writing every day that just forces you to get better at it. For sure. However, having said that, I will also say that each book is different mm. and each book teaches you to write it, write it. And so on some level, yes, of course, you have all this craft and, and honed craft. But at the same time, you've never written this book. I've never written this mm -hmm. book. So then how am I going to write this book? It has its own rules. It has its own uh, blind spots that I need to work. So it sometimes almost feels like you've never written a book before. But on the other hand, you have, you know, you have this craft. And you say that each of these books comes with their own problems. Uh, let's talk about Mansions of the Moon. What problems were specific to the writing of this book? Um, you know, out of all the books I've written, this had the least problems, mm. uh, which is interesting. You think, you know, something so far from me. Um, I think it was, if there was any problem in it, it was... Uh, well, I think there were two. There's always the same thing. You as a writer want it to be in such and such a way, yeah. but the book wants to be something else. <laughs> so I oh, I wanted to write a 200-page novel. I thought it would be just a little, you know, uh, piece of chamber music. Right. And then it just it just grew. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, this is growing, growing. And I remember an early reader saying to me, she said, I know you want it to be a short novel, but unfortunately it isn't. And... <laughs> What, and so you need to embody it. And I thought, okay, well, so I think that, you know, that was one of those things, struggles with it. Uh, I think um, it, I think I, I wanted to show the story of the growth of, the, of Buddhism, or uh, the Buddhist philosophy mm -hmm. um, in Siddhartha, but I'd never done anything. I, I'd never written a novel of ideas before. <laughs> And this is the first time I was writing a novel of ideas. Uh, I mean, of course, it's human, uh, yeah. you put in human terms, but I think I'd never done that before. What I did know how to do was how to take a, a political idea and how to run it. Like, you know, I, I knew how to do that. I knew how to take and, and make, the, make the political personal and show it that way. But I didn't know how to take the philosophical and make it personal. So that was something that I had to think about very carefully uh, and do in a way that didn't feel hopefully that the research was uh, showing through. Right, right. Because this isn't a history book specifically. It, it tells an, an, an ancient story, but it's not a history book. This is a, a story that I think uh, melds Buddhist concepts and ideas and philosophy um, with the Western novel form, yes. which is, I think, they're, they're two separate 
things and ideas. And so maybe the trick there was just learning how to meld these two together to figure out what the end product will be, because there's never been anything quite like it before. No, there hasn't. And uh, of course, that's the worst thing you can tell yourself. There's never been anything like this before, because <laughs> then I just like, uh, it just I, adds to my anxiety. Uh, I think, I think, I think I'd already tried to do that with Hungry Ghost in a different way. But with this one, I was, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I just had to teach myself how to do that. You know, as I said, you, you teach yourself, the book teaches you mm-hmm. as, as you write it. That was Shyam Salvadurai on The Richard Krauss Show. Find his new book, Mansions of the Moon, wherever you buy fine books. My guest in this segment is Roger Christian. His new film is called Galaxy Built on Hope, and it's a memoir slash documentary about how he helped create the look, the feel, the design, the everything for the original Star Wars movie, and then took home an Academy Award in doing so. It's a tribute to George Lucas. It's a tribute to John Barry, who was his boss on that production. Uh, It's an insider's look at how the look and feel of the original Star Wars movie came to be. And I have to say, full transparency, I'm in this movie, so you should check it out. You can find out all about it at galaxybuiltonhope.com. I'll tell you that again a little bit later on in the show. But here's some background. Roger Christian is an English set decorator, production designer, and feature film director. He won an Academy Award for his work on the original Star Wars and was Oscar-nominated again for his work on Alien. He directed the second unit on both Return of the Jedi and Star Wars Episode I, The Phantom Menace, as well as feature films including The Sender and Nostradamus. It was Roger's use of airplane scraps and other machinery to dress the set interiors of these films like Alien and Star Wars and the creation of weapons using old working guns adapted by adding junk that revolutionized the look of science fiction films. In this interview, we'll talk about Star Wars, and we'll also begin by talking about how he got Galaxy Built on Hope made during a pandemic. Here's Roger Christian via Zoom. Roger, congratulations on Galaxy Built on Hope. Thank you. Been a long and journey, as you it, know. <laughs> it has. Now, you know, in full transparency, I'm in this movie, uh, and we must have shot our part probably two years ago. Um, what has taken the time? I understand there was a little thing called the pandemic that got in the way. Uh, just tell me what their production has been like on this. Yeah, because, you know, we're doing it <clears throat> just like the original film, but this one, there's me and an editor, that's it. Mm. And um, the financier here, Ritu Shada, that's it. That's all we have. So um, as you, well, yeah, I was going to be originally flying all over the place doing interviews. And of course, COVID, we were landlocked here completely and no one could fly in. So um, I found this virtual studio downtown and that kind of saved our bacon because you were the first one in. Um, and I got Paul Bateman, who kind of is the liaison to Ralph McQuarrie for me, who painted all the original Star Wars um, visions, really, of what George wanted. And um, he painted sets for me that were we could use, um, like the Millennium Falcon interiors, exteriors. So you were a kind of experiment up front because I got deserts 
and I got a library from, we could download. They're all 3D integrated sets using game technology. And that was in the end how I had to do it. So after it worked with yours, then a few months later, they closed that studio. Oh, no. Of COVID. Yep. So after about six, seven months, I was the first one. They allowed us to go in if we were masked and vaccinated and separated. And we had huge restrictions, but we made it work because at the end, there's only me. Most of those were me in the studio alone because we were blue screening or green screening in people from London, from L.A., from all over the place. So um, it was possible then to do it. Well, that studio was quite something. So just so people are clear on on what it was like. So we were in a big, empty studio on a on a stage uh, that had three or four masked camera people and then a whole room full of people uh, in another room. But when you see it in the film, and I'm just seeing it now for the first time that it's coming out, uh, it, they added in. It, all the surroundings. So at some points we're standing in the desert at other points, we're sitting at a table and I can tell you, none of that stuff was there when we shot the, uh, when we shot the footage and it's, it's the same technology that they used on the Mandalorian. So uh, it is not just a green screen. It's something, whatever the next technology past that is. And it's really quite something. It looks beautiful. Yeah, no, it's, it's game tech technology basically and then just you know the sets that Paul Bateman painted were actually 36 layers of painting all come in different files and then they go into those machine rooms at the back where you saw yeah and all of that is put together you're listening to Roger Christian on the Richard Krause show find out more about Galaxy Built on Hope at galaxybuiltonhope.com the three cameras are programmed together so that spatially if they move the cameras which we call all over the place it looks like you're in the real environment and we're yeah we're basically in a green screen box um so it's game technology we were using and um yeah it's it made it possible to do this and in a way made it bigger because i was able to be with you in the desert that was like Tunisian desert, which added, and the library, we found this beautiful old library, you know, I could never have afforded anything like this. Um, And to tell you, I, you know, I shot sequences with Guillermo del Toro. He drove on his own to the outside of the Netflix studios. I drove on my own and one cameraman with one camera, that was it, met us and he and I filmed it. I held the um, microphone for him when he was doing it. He held the microphone for me and we filmed like the whole 20, 30 minutes of our interview together. That, again, that's Guillermo. He's like me. It's very simple. And um, that was the way we were able to do it. It's interesting you talk about this new technology that was uh, so instrumental in getting Galaxy built on hope uh, finished. But it reminds me, in a way, of the original Star Wars film, which, of course, uh, you were such an integral part of, and how everything seemed to come together in a way to make something that might necessarily not have worked had fortune not been smiling down on you. Yeah, it's absolutely true, you know, and it brought back all those memories of, like, 
don't give up, you know, and as, as it's well known now, only the art department, the five of us, John Barry and myself mainly, stood by George to get this done. No one else could have done it. They turned it down. Everybody said, you can't do this for this low budget and big American science fiction film. But I just had these crazy ideas, like I could build the sets out of airplane junk that nobody wanted at the time and make weapons out of existing weapons and adapt them. And this was my vision of science fiction. And it happened to coincide with um, George's vision, who, when we first met in Mexico, said, I'm trying to make a spaghetti Western in space. <laughs> I'm referring to C.A. Giulioni, who made his Westerns for a million dollars in Spain. You know, it's the same kind of attitude that I guess I've always had. And it got Galaxy Built on Hope made because you have you can't give up you've got to find your way around things but never to make it smaller never to give in to the restrictions and that's what we did on the first movie i i just refused not to make something amazing for george because i love the script despite what everybody else around us was saying <laughs> and what was it about this used universe this this idea that the millennium falcon should look like it had been knocked around a little bit uh when did that occur to you because normally in science fiction everything is very sleek uh and then after your design for the ships and things that we see in star wars uh things changed and all of a sudden people are willing to dirty up the science fiction set a little bit but that was not the case before you came along with this idea first of all i really kind of reject I love science fiction. I read a lot and I rejected every movie I saw because they just didn't look real and nothing was um, what it was like in my imagination. And I presumed the entire audience because there was no box office for mm -hmm. science fiction at that time in cinema. When George said to me up front, I, I'm, you know, I want to make a spaghetti Western in space. My only thing I said to him was, well, my version of science fiction is an old ship in a garage and it's dripping oil and it's got repaired and the owners kept it going like an old car, you know? Little did I know at the time, I was actually describing his vision of the Millennium Falcon that he'd written. As, as Luke says in it, it's a pile of junk. The first thing I did was make um, a blaster for the stormtroopers and I wanted to use a an old Sterling submachine gun which I loved the shape I, to me it was a sci-fi gun anyway mm. and I stuck bits of stuff on it and some sights and some t-strip and turned it into a weapon that George approved that was the signal for me that I was doing exactly the right thing that he wanted and what you have to remember is we had no budget I mean box were really reticent to ever make this film. It was only Alan Ladd's support. So the budget when we first went in was $4 million. Now out of that, only about six, $700,000 was the entire art department. But that's why John Barry came up with the idea, why don't we use old ancient Tunisia and I'll take George there and that'll be Tatooine. So he didn't have to spend much money. Mostly it was my dressing to make it look um, old and used, and that followed right the way through. And it, believe me, it was a gamble, and I was crossing my fingers and praying that it would work because I didn't know. It had never, there was no reference. There was nothing to go on. Nobody had ever done it. Um, and I guess it worked, and it's true. I mean, it just changed science fiction cinema forever, everything. Even Avatar now, he uses real 
props and weapons and adapts them and does stuff to them and makes everything look real. That was my mantra. It was George's. And, and you know, what you say that the universe coincided at one point, brought John Barry and myself and George together. Um, and the force was with us. <laughs> <laughs> now, what's it like for you uh, thinking back to creating the first lightsaber, uh, when you see now that it's become one of the most famous movie props of all time, uh, there are toys, little kids play with them. Uh, they're, they're everywhere. They are omnipresent. What, what's your reaction when you see a television commercial and there's a lightsaber on it or, or just anything that comes out of your creation? Well, I, you know, it, it, was, it was the hardest thing to find for me as a prop because I couldn't afford to make one and I didn't have the time. We only had two months before we were shooting. So I, it, I struggled to find a, a found object and I detail this whole journey in the documentary, even to the man, um, David French, who managed the camera shop where I found the Grappolex handles. Um, and when, when I found that, see, when going back, I grew up with King Arthur. I loved King Arthur, the legends. I lived in it, you know, in sword fighting at that time. There was Ivanhoe. There, it was all sword fighting then. So I kind of knew that King Arthur, it's not King Arthur that's remembered that's gone through history. It's Excalibur that sword rising out of the water. You're listening to Roger Christian on The Richard Krause Show. Find out more about his documentary, Galaxy Built on Hope, at galaxybuiltonhope.com. So I knew as soon as I read the script, uh-oh, this is going to become the icon of Star Wars if this film works. Um, so I kind of feel grateful. You know, I, when I found this Graplex handle, that, that I just went, oh, my goodness, I found the Holy Grail. It, I could never design it. It looked purposeful it looked like a function it had a red button it just it looked like a lightsaber <laughs> to me so i stuck my t-strip that i had in the office left over from the um blaster and i broke down an old um texas um instrument calculator and the bubble strip that illuminated the numbers for you and magnified them it fit perfectly in the clip which i didn't like it gave it away it was a clip there it was, and George just loved it. It was the right weight. Um, and we had to come up with all the other ones as well, the different lightsabers. But I, I think it justified my belief that this was something very special in my hand. And when Luke was using it the first time and it fires up, I thought, yeah, I think we're okay here. I think this might work. Um, and now, you know, it has to be. I mean, there's so many lights toys one in this house that Arjun gets. <laughs> and uh, there's always lightsaber fights going on here in the garden and, and everywhere you look. So I, I think, you know, if, more than just that, what makes me happy is George wrote this movie for nine-year-old children. He says to me many times, it's not my fault adults like it as well. <laughs> He created a myth, a perfect myth he was able to because Joseph Campbell, you know, influenced and mentored him on how to write a myth and how to put in those keys in it. And it's triumph of light over darkness. 
it's a lightsaber. It's a sword of light. This is absolute, you know, metaphor for the Jedi's who are the good, and they don't go out and battle. They defend, and um, they'll fight when they have to, but always for right. So what he's done to me is given the world something to believe in, when not a lot left to believe in, and I think that lightsaber is a symbol of that. So that is what makes me happy. Well, that's one of the messages that you want Galaxy Built on Hope uh, to uh, magnify. I think probably that message is uh, just as potent now, if not more so, than it was when the film came out. Yeah, more so now, you know, and it's it's needed and required, you know, and the children all over the world, they've suffered two years of isolation and masks, so they don't see each other's faces and smiling. So I think, I think that's, you know, a little bit to do with this explosion of Star Wars that already was massive, but it's just growing and growing now with each new generation. And um, I just, I wanted to kind of give George a thank you and to give him a recognition of his place in not just cinema, which is like beyond any movie sagas that have ever existed, but give him a place in history for what he's done for the world because he you know some of the movies he's had a rough time over and even selling out and there was a reason he had to do that um and i think the world owes him a great debt um and i point that out you know at the heart of the movie is those sentiments of compassion forgiveness and in, in the end you can call it love that's what it is that's george you've been listening to roger christian on the richard krauss show find out all about his new documentary galaxy built on hope at galaxybuiltonhope.com a big thanks to roger for coming by also a big thanks to author shyam salvadurai for coming by his new novel mansions of the moon is available wherever you buy fine books my biggest thanks as always, goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay safe, stay healthy, stay weird. We'll talk to you again soon. <laughs>